Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome back to our study of the Gospel of Luke and our current series, When God Speaks, What Do You Hear? And the text today is an excellent example of the rewards you can reap when we do the hard work of kind of digging beneath the layers of the language in the writing. But I bet you're going to have a really hard time paying attention and taking anything I have to say seriously until I've explained my rather strange appearance, right? See, at this moment, you have absolutely no context for why I'm sitting here looking the way that I do. And since you're watching online and you're not a captive audience, you would be perfectly free to just grab the mouse, scroll with the thumb, whatever device you're on, and find another online church service to watch this morning instead of listening to some weirdo in his basement wearing a heavy winter coat and a pair of froggy earmuffs. But what if I told you that several hours ago my hydro went out and right now it's extremely cold, like sub-zero in my house? And what if I also told you that just before my hydro went out, I put all of my warm winter hats in the laundry machine and they are right now soaking wet and full of soap. I cannot use them to keep my ears warm. Now you have some context. Suddenly I'm not just a weirdo in the basement. I'm a guy who's trying by obviously any means necessary to stay warm right down to my daughter's froggy earmuffs. And once you know that, it might be at least a little easier to get past my appearance and listen to what I want to say. Okay, well, that's honestly just an object lesson for this morning. Uh, my hydro's not really out and, and it's not freezing cold in here. In fact, um, with all of this on, I'm getting quite warm. So if you bear with me a moment, I'm gonna ditch all of this stuff and then we will carry on. Well, that's much better. <laughs> What was the point of, of all of that silliness? The point I wanna make here is the importance of context. That text that Claire read for us earlier has to do with John the Baptist who comes with a bit of a reputation for being an odd character. So I wanna make sure we're placing him in his proper context before we begin to do the work of taking his teaching, his message seriously. Truth be told, in our text here in the Gospel of Luke, Luke doesn't have much to say about John's appearance. We get that from other places in Scripture. So here's what Matthew's Gospel has to say about the appearance of John. This is uh, Matthew chapter 3, verse 4. John's clothes were woven from coarse camel hair, and he wore a leather belt around his waist. For food, he ate locusts and wild honey. So John appears here a little bit like a random crackpot weirdo in the desert, like a minute ago without context, I appeared like a random crackpot weirdo sitting in his basement. You know, he's dressed in strange clothes and he's foraging around for bugs for sustenance. 
And you might be tempted just to push him aside, write him off as nothing useful or meaningful could come from this guy. We got to place him in his proper context. And this is one of those cases where Marshall McLuhan would say, you know, the medium is the message, or at least it's, it's a part of the message. John's strange attire actually communicates something to his Jewish audience. They would have understood what was going on with him looking the way that he did. Check out this description of the prophet Elijah from the book of 2 Kings. They replied, he was a hairy man. And here, hairy could be translated as clothing made of hair. He was a hairy man, Elijah, and he wore a leather belt around his waist. That sounds familiar from our account of John the Baptist. The role of prophet to the Israelites of the Old Testament was a big deal. And Elijah was the biggest of the big deals. So to visually identify John with Elijah, that makes John a big deal too. It equates John with Elijah and Elijah's status as someone who would come before God's return to Israel in the final day. And that's prophecy from Malachi 4. And there's not much more you could do to establish street cred for John than to equate him with Elijah and God's return to Israel in the final day. This is what they were waiting for. This is what they were expecting. So now we know a little bit about why John appeared the way that he did. So we can put that thought of him being a random crackpot weirdo in the desert out of our minds and we can really get serious about what he has to say. When you're reading scripture, the context is really, really important. Hey, with all that preamble about context out of the way, let's begin to step through this text together and see what Luke has to say and what John has to say in Luke's account here. Verses 1 and 2. Luke places John and, by extension, Jesus in the context of human history. So let's just take a little trip through this little piece of, of Israel's history here. Israel had returned from their exile in Babylon somewhere about 538 BCE. That's before the Common Era, what we used to just call BC. Jerusalem, which is hugely important to Israel's national identity, that's been rebuilt. The rebuilding of their temple for worship has begun. Then, Fast forward to 63 BCE, Rome shows up and Rome captures Jerusalem. And in a very real sense, Israel is exiled and oppressed, but this time in their own homeland. And of course, if we're familiar with the Easter story, we know this fellow Pilate that Luke refers to here. This is the guy who bowed to public pressure and permitted the crucifixion of Jesus. And then there's a bit in here about these two guys called Annas and Caiaphas. And they're identified as the high priests of Israel. And that presents a fairly significant problem because there shouldn't have been more than one high priest for Israel according to their traditions. Without digging too much into the, the scholarship and the history of all of that, let's just suffice it to say 
that there was some political intrigue and Annas is kind of forced to abdicate his position as high priest and he manages to somehow appoint his son-in-law Caiaphas to the position while he, Annas, remains behind the scenes pulling the strings and really holding on to the power that had been amassed into the office of high priest. All of which goes against the very nature of what the role of high priest was supposed to be all about, which was to aid Israel in their worship of the Lord. So there's political oppression going on. There's corruption of the national practices of worship. And all of this adds up to a people who are longing for this final day, for the Messiah to come, for God to return in a, a more tangible way to be with the nation of Israel. And this is partly what makes John the Baptist's message and his likeness to the prophet Elijah so enticing to them because they see it as a sign that there is hope on the horizon. But in some senses, they struggled with the question that our series is based around. You know, when God speaks, what do you hear? God was speaking. The time for the Messiah's arrival was in fact at hand, but the people misunderstood what God was saying about it, what God was promising. See, in trying to understand the coming of the Messiah within the scope of their own present human suffering, they missed the far more comprehensive picture that God had in mind for his saving work. And that takes us to verses four through six. Luke places John, and again, by extension, Jesus, into the context of God's promise of salvation, his plan for the salvation of humanity. Luke appeals to messianic prophecies to establish Jesus' credentials. Verse 4, the desert represents return from exile as a sort of new exodus. And that's analogous to, you know, God's delivery of Israel from their slavery in Egypt way back near the beginning of the Old Testament. And that's a super important and pivotal part of Israel's history as a nation. And the final expectation that Israel's awaiting, which we understand to be Jesus, is often represented in Jewish history and literature and the scriptures as a second greater exodus, a second greater delivery. So again, the context is really important. Luke presents the message in a contextually appropriate way and in a culturally meaningful way for the audience of the day. Let's go to verses four and five. Identifying John as one preparing the way for the Lord's coming, clearing the road for him. That's ancient Near East imagery of clearing the path for a royal figure. Only a smooth, straight road would do, would be appropriate for a king or a noble person of great stature to travel on. So this is a metaphor for John's work. His baptisms of repentance that the text speaks about prepare the people spiritually and morally to be ready to welcome Jesus. The King is coming. 
verse 6, when the Messiah arrives, all of humanity will see salvation. Luke, like all of the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, he has a particular purpose in mind, and he crafts and organizes his narrative around that purpose. Luke quotes more of the prophet Isaiah than Matthew or Mark do in their accounts of this. And I think this is due, at least in part, to who Luke's audience is. Whereas Matthew's gospel was written for a Jewish audience, Luke is writing to this fellow called Theophilus. We saw him way back at the beginning of chapter 1. And Theophilus is not a Jewish person, he's a Gentile. Isaiah's writings would be more accessible to a Gentile audience because Isaiah speaks more to the universal nature of God's plan of salvation. Luke, at least to me, Luke seems kind of almost crafty in his composition of the narrative. He, his references to prophecy give the identities of John and Jesus credibility with the Jewish people, but also foreshadows the universal nature of God's plan of salvation for all of humanity. It's very clever writing on Luke's part. And that's something that we can hear God speaking to us really clearly through from this history in this writing. As we said, the medium is part of the message. John's very existence, as outlined in the early chapters of Luke, tells us that the age of God's final, most fulsome plan for universally available salvation is at hand. It's arrived. In fact, I think Luke really wants to make sure that his readers don't miss this point. Unlike Matthew and Mark, Luke gathers almost all of his material about John the Baptist into these opening chapters, save for a little reference in chapter 7. And gathering all of the material here about John allows Luke to dramatically shift attention onto Jesus, beginning in verse 21. John is here in the story to mark a hugely significant transition. Check out this quote from F.W.H. Myers. It is significant, therefore, that through his lips the law and the prophets should announce their transitional purpose, and that he, he who caught up the torch of Hebrew prophecy with a grasp and spirit unrivaled by any before him, should have it in his power and in his heart to say, the object of all prophecy the purpose of Mosaic law, the end of all sacrifices, the desire of all nations is at hand. And forthwith, turning to the true shepherd who stood at the door waiting to be admitted, to him the porter opened, bowing low as he passed and crying, This is he of whom Moses in the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth, who was for to come. What beautiful writing there from Myers about the role of John the Baptist. And aside from being a part of the message, John also had lots of message to give himself in words. So let's go back to verse 3 for a moment. John's work was preaching that people should be baptized to show that they had repented of their sins. And what have we learned so far that's so important when we're interpreting Scripture? 
Yes, context. You're with me. Context. And it's important here again. I kind of imagine in our post-Christendom context in Western culture that there are lots of folks who may look in and wonder what on earth we're doing when we baptize. Think of the scene at New Life when we baptize folks. We bring out a big metal tank, we fill it up with water, we often gather the children around it, then someone that we identify as a pastor, which is the title that's not used outside of the church, he takes the person, dunks them in the water in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And you can see how that might seem strange to someone who didn't understand the context who had no previous experience with what a baptism by immersion was. But God's not speaking into the history of John's time in a way that would have seemed odd to his contemporaries, the people of his day. The role of water and ceremony then wasn't uncommon. The Jewish people knew of repeated baptisms for temporary cleansing. And if you look back in the Old Testament, the book of Leviticus, you'll find out how seriously the Jewish people take the issue of ceremonial cleanness. And there's also some historical evidence to suggest that a single immersive baptism underwater was used when a Gentile converted to the Jewish faith. So this baptism in water would not have been received as a, a really super strange thing. There was deep meaning in it. And we carry that deep meaning forward with us when we baptize today. And that's important for us to know. That's important for us as Jesus people today to communicate to people when we do this so they understand the deep meaning and the beauty of it. Now, for a bit of narrative whiplash, let's jump to verse 7 where John moves from talking about the beauty of baptism and repentance to a brood of snakes. If baptism is such a good thing, why does John call crowds of people coming to be baptized a brood of snakes? To understand that, I think we really need to understand the purpose of John's baptism. See, the ceremony of baptism, that's not foreign to the crowd of people coming to John. They, they know about that. What is foreign to them is the meaning of John's baptism. Verse 3, Luke says that John preached that the people should be baptized to show that they had repented of their sins. The Greek word at play here for show is defined as a marker of purpose or result. It's a marker. Jewish historian Josephus writes this about this kind of baptism. Baptism itself did not accomplish remission of sins, but was a consecration of the body, implying that the soul was cleansed by repentant behavior. And this is where John's brood of snakes comment comes from. 
The crowd isn't coming to him with repentant hearts. They're coming because they think having themselves dunked in some ceremonial water will equal or guarantee their salvation before God. And this whole portion of the text, verses 7 to 9, is all about people wanting to be reconciled to God, to be identified as belonging safely to God without having repentant hearts. And John's not having it, and he kind of lays into the people here, calls them a brood of snakes. He talks about God's wrath. He talks about the children of Abraham and children of Abraham being made from stones. And we don't have time to go down those roads this morning, uh, but we have gone into that a little bit in the extra sections of the notes that you can download that go along with today's teaching. So if you scroll down underneath me here in YouTube to the video description, hit the show more link, you'll be able to see see a link to download those notes and check out some stuff on wrath and the children of Abraham. But I don't want to dwell there this morning because I want to make sure that we really have time to think about what God might be wanting to say to us today through this text about baptism and repentance. What I hear through Luke's narrative, is John the Baptist saying, no, 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 this can't be some cheap, inauthentic, surface-level thing you do. If I'm going to baptize you, it must be because you've come to a place of having a repentant heart. It doesn't give you a repentant heart. You come for this baptism because you have a repentant heart. So in verse 10, the people begin to ask John, well, what shall we do? In effect, they're asking, what does this repentance you speak of look like? In a nutshell, it looks like Jesus' kingdom. Remember, John is here at this point in history as a forerunner of Jesus to start getting people used to the idea of how expansive Jesus as the Messiah, how expansive and inclusive and all-encompassing his kingdom is going to be. John's presence makes this transition between an old, limited way of looking at God's kingdom to a more fully revealed way of looking at that kingdom that's about to be seen in Jesus. We say this often in our teaching here at New Life, that Jesus is the clearest picture of God that we can have. We really want to understand what God is like, what God is all about. Look at Jesus. Check out John's answers to the people and tell me if this doesn't sound Jesus-y to you. Verse 11, if you have more than someone else who is in need, share it. Verse 12, Treat others honestly and don't be greedy. Verse 13, if you have authority, that authority is not for your benefit. Don't use that authority to threaten others. And while you're at it, be content with what you have. John's answers elevate the poor, the honest, those under authority, the weak. That all parallels with Jesus' kingdom teachings. Here's Jesus' own words in the Beatitudes section of his Sermon on the Mount from Matthew chapter 5. God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him. 
the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses those who mourn, they'll be comforted. God blesses those who are humble, they will inherit the earth. God blesses those who hunger and thirst for justice, they'll be satisfied. God blesses those who are merciful, they'll be shown mercy. God blesses those whose hearts are pure, for they will see God. God blesses those who work for peace, for they'll be called the children of God. God blesses those who are persecuted for doing right, for the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, is theirs. The thrust of what John is saying to these people is that if one turns to God, if one really belongs to God, one's life should look different than the greedy, dishonest, and predatory systems of the world. You can't look to a ceremony like baptism to say, I am God's, and continue to participate in those kinds of things unrepentantly. That's where the world's kingdoms and God's kingdom diverge on two very different roads. And you know what happens if you get to a fork in the road that goes off like this in front of you and you try to keep one foot on either path. Sooner or later, you're pulled apart. You can't do it. You have to choose. An awareness of our relationship with God, our accountability to God, should make us more sensitive to how we treat those around us. We should become more aware of the ethical dimension of life, the horizontal relationships that we have with the people around us. Even as we cling to the safety of the vertical salvific relationship that we have with God. And that was a revolutionary way to think in John's time, like hugely so. Sadly, I think it's a revolutionary way for us to think in our society today. This is what John's getting at in verses 16 and 17. He's trying to get across that the Messiah is going to be so much more and so different from what is expected. In fact, he's saying, just you wait. You think what I'm saying is turning your concept of God's kingdom upside down? Just wait until you see the guy that's coming after me. He's revolutionary. To wrap up today, if you have a printed Bible or you got an online Bible handy, I want you to look down at verses 19 and 20. Before Luke moves on to the baptism of Jesus in verses 21 and 22, there's about two short sentences there regarding this guy named Herod Antipas. And at first glance, you might be tempted to wonder, well, what the heck is that doing there? We've been reading this lovely stuff about John's message of a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, and we've equated it to the coming of Jesus, all-encompassing, all-inclusive kingdom and salvation for everyone. Why is this bit about Herod here? I'm not sure how this looks in your copy of the Bible, but in mine, those two sentences about Herod actually look like the bottom portion of an exclamation mark on the page underneath all the stuff about baptism and repentance and the nature of the kingdom. It wouldn't have looked like that in Luke's text, of course, because those little divisions in the text, that's an innovation of our modern Bibles. But I don't think it's an accident that Luke placed those two sentences there. 
And it really does, in the narrative, have the effect of a big old exclamation mark. Luke's a smart guy in his writing. See, Herod Antipas was the poster boy for everything John had been speaking about. Herod was the ruler appointed by Rome to oversee the region. He's supposed to look after the people of Israel. But he ends up taking from the people, serving his own greed in lots of dishonest ways. He abuses his authority in unspeakable ways. He's the very representation of the kind of systems in the world that Jesus' kingdom comes to replace. And so Luke really cleverly ends this section on John the Baptist with these two quick sentences that drive home John's ministry of baptism showing repentance before Jesus' revolutionary kingdom-building ministry is inaugurated in the coming verses. I want to leave you with just three quick things to ponder. First, if you've read texts about John the Baptist before, how much a factor was his appearance like random weirdo in the desert in your take on those passages? Did it kind of impede your understanding of that at all? I hope for all of us today that we really underscored the importance of reading in context. If you really want to grasp the intent of what God is saying when he speaks through scripture, I can't stress context enough. Second, we've just skimmed over some stuff about the role of prophecy and how God speaks through history about his plan of salvation for humanity. But I hope this bit that we've touched on today has been and continues to be a a good part of showing you how God is active in human history in drawing people to himself. He has always been at work doing that. And finally, what does it mean for you, for us, to have repentant hearts? How does that factor into our overall view of our faith journeys? What would it look like if every person who identified themselves as a Jesus follower really took that seriously? How would some of the things that take place in our culture, our society right now, those oppressive systems, how could that change? Let's pray together. God, thank you for all of the ways that you speak to us. Thank you for the pages of scripture that bear your word in written form to us. Thank you for Jesus as the living word who helps us to parse the intent of your written word. Thank you for all of this together and the role that your spirit plays in enabling us to hear clearly what you are speaking to us. Because we know that you are active, have been active, will be active in drawing people to yourself. That's the point of the mission that you are on. Thank you for speaking this so clearly to us. God, I pray that your spirit can be in, at work in us this week. Show us ways that our lives maybe don't resemble the kingdom that Jesus came to inaugurate. Help us to see others more and more each day the way that you do with infinite value and love. 
I want to pray for those who are struggling with these concepts, who are struggling with health, who are struggling with, with recovery from virus and, and surgeries and pain and all sorts of things right now. God, would you bring healing and would your spirit bring peace to those? All of this we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.